Hello, hello. You're listening to The Long Game. I'm your host, David Lee Kim, co-founder of Omniscient Digital. And in this episode, we chat with Joe Lee, VP of Growth Marketing at Entra. Previously, Joe led growth and demand generation at People.ai and Checker, where he built the operations and teams needed to scale revenue to achieve unicorn status. He spent over 15 years helping organizations of all stages implement the processes, technologies, and people needed to drive targeted, automated, and exponential growth. In this conversation, we go deep into account-based marketing, or ABM. Now, ABM is often a nebulous phrase or word that people often describe differently. They toss it around in conversations, but for the longest time, I didn't really know what account-based marketing looked like or what it was. It seemed like just a list of tactics. In this conversation, Joe shares what a true ABM orchestration looks like and some examples of campaigns that he has run. We also get into the backstory of how he developed as a marketing leader and his hot take on a future of the CMO role. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Joe Lee. Joe, how's it going? It's so great to have you on The Long Game. Thanks so much for making the time. Yeah, it's going well, and I'm really excited to be here. Sweet. So let's jump straight into it. You're currently VP of Growth Marketing Entra, and we met, I guess, about a year ago from working together at People AI. And I like to think we became good friends uh, after one of our, our business trips out to New York. So what, what remem- reminded me of our conversation was... Um, you're the first person to actually explain what account-based marketing was to me. It's always been a very vague thing to myself and, and peers. So we'll talk about that later. So before we get to that, uh, you told me the story about how you got into tech. I think it's a really fun story um, about how you moved from San Diego. So yeah. maybe we can start there. Tell me about that story of where you were before you got into tech and how you made that transition. Yeah, I'm guessing what you're you're referencing is I I started my career post college thinking I wanted to be a pastor. So I was a I was a college <laughs> pastor for four years, and I, I I have what they call a master's of divinity. I don't know how you master's the the, the divine, but that's what I was studying. And um and uh, you know in in that process, I, I kind of stumbled into marketing. I was working for a, a nonprofit um, micro lender in San Diego paying my way through seminary. Uh, and, um, and, and through all that, I, I realized, you know, I'm, 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 I, I don't think I, I want to do this anymore. So I, I graduate from my, uh, my master's program. My mom's like, so what, are you going to get a church job now? And I told her, no, nah, I, I think I'm going to move to San Francisco and live in a hacker house and uh, try to get into tech. I think she completely thought I'd lost my mind. Uh, but that's what I did. I uh, literally packed all my possessions, uh, 29 into two SUVs. I sold the house that I bought in San Diego. I moved into San, uh, moved up to San Francisco, lived in a, in a one-bedroom hacker house or like a, a one-bedroom in a hacker house. It was the size of a walk-in closet with like 18 other uh, mostly men. And I just tried to break into tech. Um, and uh, it was four to five months of full-time grinding, watching my uh, net worth, you know, fall in the tens of thousands under zero. 
and uh, and uh, and I I got my first startup gig. So um, that's what, that's what did that started. Yeah, what did that time look like? So you're living in this hacker house, which I had not heard of before, but I can imagine what it looks like. But what were you doing in that time to like try to break into tech? Yeah, um, at that time there was you know uh, this was seven eight years ago now. So boot camps were were having its heyday. Not only developer boot camps, but also boot camps for mark uh, marketers. Or at that time we were calling them growth hackers. Boot camps for growth hackers and boot camp for product management and and design, UX design, and and all, you know sales. And so I was doing a, a growth hacker boot camp, uh, and and that was three months. Uh, 60 hours a week, you know, and yeah, there was some classes, but really, I think what boot the bootcamp provided me was, uh, you know, the network, the friends, right? Just to, you know, I mean, a lot of these these folks became my best friends. It was like a, almost like a concentrated MBA experience. I, I think about, and and then I think the the most important thing, the excuse to just focus on my career for three months, right? Because I went and told my parents, I'm doing this bootcamp. They like guarantee I'm gonna get a job. Like my parents, while they thought I was crazy, they they still understood the concept of school and career development, and and it was the excuse basically to 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 really commit myself full time to trying to get into tech, and that's really what I think I got out of, out of it. On the hacker house side, I mean, literally, I think it was 18 people uh, living in this house. I think uh, 16 of us were guys sharing what was functionally two bathrooms. Uh, so uh, you can uh, you can imagine what uh, what what that experience was like, but you know, um, I mean, I think back to those four or five months, and as stressful and uh, uncertain as my life was at that time, it 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 really served as as just an amazing foundation um, uh, to to being in San Francisco. Uh, some of the most fun I'd ever had in my life. And actually, it was right around 2015. So it was kind of the heyday, not only of boot camps, but of uh, uh, Web 2.0. I mean, there was a new app being released every single week. I mean, I, I mean, there were like people passing out flyers on market, uh, just promoting the new app. And so being in that kind of educational environment, while there was two or three apps being released every week. I mean, we, I remember my, at one point, my phone probably had 200 apps that we were just testing and trying to understand. And it was, um, I was really fortunate. I, 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 you know, people ask me nowadays, do, do I recommend them coming and doing this? And I'm like, you know, I don't know, like it worked for me, but I, I think it was partly also just a, a result of, 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 the time, right? That that I, I got so much success out of it. I think things have changed a little bit in terms of, um, you know, kind of the whole boot camp arena nowadays. Yeah, it, it sounds like you definitely burned the boats with the move up to San Francisco. Much more risk than I would personally take, but it worked out for you. And you say it was like a condensed MBA, but probably cheaper than yeah. an MBA and took less time. So yeah. it, it seemed to have many pros. Probably about half the price of a semester of an MBA, I would say. Yeah, yeah, sounds like a great deal. So now uh, you're at Entra as VP of Growth Marketing. Tell tell us about you know you broke into tech and now you're at Entra. What was that journey like? Yeah, so um, you know one of the things I really actually disagreed with the boot camp on they had career coaching and it was this very millennial you know. Uh, you know, fake it till you make it. Shoot for your dream company and 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 go get it right. Do the do the networking, 
if you want to work for Uber, if you want to work for Airbnb, go find an executive there and just like force your way in was kind of the mantra. Uh And I, I just didn't believe them. Right. my teacher at, at the bootcamp called me the, the the persistent skeptic as a as a negative thing. And I, I actually saw that as a good thing, right? Because I, I just didn't drink that part of the Kool-Aid. So for me, early in my tech career, I optimized for experience and title over sexiness of the company. Uh, and and so I got in uh, as a demand gen manager into it was a startup called NetPulse. Um Really interesting background. Like it was uh, founded probably 10 years before by like one of the co-founders of, of Intuit. And uh, they, 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 their core product was selling TV screens on treadmills. So it was health tech and uh, yeah, and it was a hardware company. And all of a sudden, um, uh, you know, all the OEMs, all the manufacturers of these treadmills, they started to bring all that in-house. So, so NetPulse had to quickly pivot. And so they pivoted from this OEM uh, hardware focused company selling the five accounts to uh, uh, mobile apps for gyms. So it opened up the entire gym market and and we were basically selling white labeled mobile apps for gyms, which if you are a gym member now is pretty de facto technology for your gym experience. We really, I think, paved paved the way for that. Um, And and I joined right at that pivot and it was... uh, it was an exciting time. I mean, um, you know, I learned inbound marketing. We were a big HubSpot shop. So, you know, that was, I think, my my first foray into marketing technology. And, you know, because the gym market uh, is mostly an SMB play, uh, you know, lead gen, content, email nurtures, I mean, all, all that played such a big role into that. Um, and then, uh, and we we grew quickly, right? I, uh, uh, within a year, you know, I, I basically rode the net pulse wave from 50 employees up to about 130. And then unfortunately back down to about 60 when I decided, all right, this isn't going anywhere. But in that time, I joined. So basically, I guess what I'm trying to say, I joined a company on no one's radar because it had been a hardware company for 10 years and was pivoting. Uh, and uh, and, and, um, and uh, I joined for the experience because was probably a higher title than I could get at at a at a more sexy company, uh, and and I joined at a time when I got to do a lot of things. So by the time I left NetPulse, I was running marketing, I was running implementation, I was running uh, biz ops or rev ops, you know we call it now. And uh, believe it or not, I was uh, the head of people. So so uh, my my <laughs> least favorite. My least favorite part of that job was my weekly meeting with our office manager where, where I had to field snack complaints. Um, so, <laughs> uh, and, but, uh, and I, because I had a, a seat at the table from a leadership point of view, I got to ride that wave of hyper growth. We ran out of TAM, basically. Like we, at, when we started, when we ran out of TAM, we basically realized we were we we you know six of the top ten largest enterprises were already on our platform, and there you know there was not much more to go, and so we quickly started to shrink after that. And so when I left, I was you know I had a lot of experience in a two year time. What that afforded me the opportunity to do was then I actually look for like a higher, like either director. And I actually landed a, a associate vice president uh, position at a company called Sutherland. Uh, 
If you haven't heard of it, prop makes sense to me. I hadn't either. It, Sutherland was a 30-year-old BPO, business processing outsourcing company, billion-dollar revenue, 60,000 employees across the world. And they were basically looking for a young tech startup guy to build out their digital engine. And so I was like the youngest executive in the room, probably by at least 20 years. And and I literally, I, I really believe I got the job because who in their right mind would pick you know, to work for a company like that in tech, right? And, and, and I did because I optimized for experience. I optimized for title. I knew that was the quickest way for me to, uh, uh, to accelerate my career and, and um, was there for another two years. I think the thing that I learned at Sutherland uh, that, um, you know, really, you know, interestingly is, is the politics. <laughs> how, you know, how, how do you work with uh, older execs? How do you, uh, who, who've been doing the same thing for the last 20 years, how do you get your ideas through? How do you run pilots? And, 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 and uh, deck building was a skill I learned there. <laughs> Built a lot of decks there. And like, you know, some, some listeners might hear that and go like, man, that sounds terrible. But like, those are literally the, some of the most valuable skills I learned as a leader at, at this company, which, which was terrible, but, but, you know, very valuable. So, yeah, we've talked about that before. And I know folks will complain about the office politics and all of that, but it's actually a very valuable skill once you start going to larger companies where it's, it's almost a feature, not a bug where you kind of need that in order to maintain like the process and everything within a company. So yeah, it, it's great that you got to get that experience. I wanted to ask about, um, you were saying you optimize for title and experience, not the sexiness of the company. Where did you learn that? Was that just a hypothesis you had yourself or was there some teacher mentor who was like, hey, Joe, like forget the sexy companies, optimize for this instead? You know, I think part of it, when you know, going back to the boot camp, I was a little bit more mid-career than a lot of folks, right? I was 29 when I did the boot camp. So it was a true career pivot for me. So I, I think it was, and and uh, you know, I am a millennial, but I'm I'm probably borderline, you know, young millennial, right? So I think part of it was life experience. The other part was I I think I fundamentally like rejected this notion that I'm special and you know that the world needs to like keel over to me or, or whatever. So um, I can't say it was a specific person that that kind of taught me that, uh, but it was just more like. The older I got, I just became a little bit more of a realist than my peer set uh, at the time. Yeah, maybe maybe the Masters of Divinity taught you some wisdom. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, maybe maybe I'll fast forward a little bit. We had met at People AI, where you were also VP of Marketing before yep. your current role at Entra. So, what are you focused on now? What are your the goals or challenges that you're focused on? Yeah, I mean. It's a good question. I mean, uh, so I, I'm I'm a VP of growth marketing. So you know, one one thing I I specifically picked that title over kind of probably a more traditional title and traditional meaning maybe what what it was called ten years ago, which was like the man gen, specifically because I think old school like a. Uh, Old school demand gen had has a had a very very defined definition. Typically, you know, the goal of a demand gen leader was to drive MQLs, marketing qualified leads, for the sales team to follow up on. And 
so much I think has changed in the last 10, 15 years. You know, the introduction of uh, account-based marketing, the introduction of product-led growth as a concept, the, the, you know, the, the disruption of this whole era of growth hacking and experimentation and all that. Um, I think seeing the demand gen leader as also owning things like field marketing and events, I, you know, I think the role has shifted so much, you know, um, at people AI, I really pushed for the title of growth marketing because it, it, it started to feel like it was becoming the, at least in the tech world, the, the, the de facto title for the person who really is just, you know, the person on the marketing team, who's really committed to growth in whatever fashion that might be, whether it's users, leads, pipeline, revenue. Um, so I set up, I set that up to say, you know, at, 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 at uh, Entra now, that's really what I'm focused on. Like I, I'm the person on the leader on the marketing team that anytime, you know, someone has a question, how do we grow from this to this? You know, it, it kind of falls under my, my department. So I have a fairly wide remit. Um, I, I definitely have digital, which, you know, I would consider more traditional demand gen. I have a campaigns team, which is kind of more demand gen ABM, but I also have field and events uh, on, uh, under me. I have content under me. Uh, I'm helping out build out our, our EMEA APAC uh, presence uh, with, you know, and, and so it, it's a fairly wide remit, um, you know, if we if we ever went into a, a more traditional a more PLG motion, that would that would kind of be under me as well. So so those are kind of the things I'm focused on here. Yeah. And what would you say are the biggest challenges in your job? Like that's those are a lot of different things to be doing. So yep. what what are difficult parts of it? Yeah, I think it's a it's a it's it's fewfold. Um on the biggest challenge that comes to mind right now is hiring. Um, uh, our, our team is three Xing, uh, this year and, and the economy is not slowing us down, which is really exciting. I have a lot of director roles to hire, um, because, uh, uh and, and so that's, that's been probably the biggest challenge, uh, and, and what I'm focusing the most on. Um, I think, uh, uh, the second is education. I think, um, probably of, yeah, I, I think depending on the org, you know, the most, you know, uh, the most misunderstood uh, parts of marketing can either be kind of the growth demand gen side of the equation or, or product marketing. Um, so I think a lot of what I feel like I need to do is, hey, you know, when we talk about growth marketing, what are we actually talking about? Why does it matter? You know, why should we even care about these metrics? So a lot of it has just been doing internal education and, and uh, you know, like, you know, educating the, the team, like why what I do is important. And then I think the third part, uh, which which might actually be the number one concern is, am I um, setting believable metrics? And I think the believable piece is key. Or like, uh, and what I mean by that is, are we all aligned that these are the metrics that matter? And do we really believe that? And two, um, am I meeting them? Right. Because that's ultimately what's going to, you know, uh, allow the company to continue to fund my programs and make sure I have a job. So, you know, I, I think lately those are really what I'm thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. The the way you're positioning your role as the VP of growth market is interesting. I think it's interesting to me because I've been enmeshed in this growth marketing thing where you know that's that's kind of where I started. I didn't get much of a taste of the traditional demand gen that you talk about. So when you talk about this internal education of the org, 
how are you defining or explaining growth marketing to the team? And what are the metrics you're proposing that folks are getting used to? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I think the definition is pretty similar to what, what I just talked about is, is I'm the leader on the org who's uh, in the marketing team who's thinking about growth, whatever and whatever, whatever that means to you. I think for most B2B companies, that's revenue, which is, uh, you know, which is uh, uh, which a KPI of or a leading indicator of revenue is pipeline or leads. Right. So so I, I think that's one strain of it. Right. Where, you know, like. And that's an education in and of itself. Like, I think everyone on the executive level understands, hey, revenue is a good thing and we want to see this grow, uh, you know, time and time again. I think, but we have to educate, you know, if by the time I realize revenue is down, it's already too late, right? Like that's that's a key thing. And, and, and the way we get ahead of that is we introduce the concept of leading indicators, which is actually something you and I spent a, you know, a lot of time focused on at People AI. Like what are all the leading indicator metrics before revenue that we could start looking at to kind of warn us, like the canary in the coal mine that says, oh, if X is down, we, we should fix this. Otherwise, in three months, it's going to hurt revenue. And because marketing typically is more of an early cycle, I mean, marketing in some ways is the canary in the coal mine, right? We're paying attention, attention to some of those leading indicators like leads, marketing qualified leads, MQLs, pipeline, the conversion rates in between those stages. And so, so there's a lot of education there. So when, when, um, so when I, when I report to the executive team, Hey, marketing generated 200 leads, the response isn't, Oh, well, I can't, I can't, you know, bring leads to the bank, which, which is a response I've actually heard in the market. It's like, Oh, uh, wow. That's lower than before. There might be some risk here. Let's really dig in to see what's happening. Right. And, 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 and I think that's kind of the education process, you know, probably a better, better indicator, you know, just to drive alignment is pipeline. Cause most people understand, you know, like, uh, you know, pipeline solves all pain. Right. You know, so it's like, Hey, our pipeline is down. That's probably going to impact revenue three, six months down to, you know, we should dig in and figure out what's going on here. Yeah. I think you're talking about something really interesting here. Our, our audience tends to be, you know, some folks in marketing leadership, some folks are who, are who are individual contributors who want to eventually be in those roles. But the thing that you kind of have to learn the hard way sometimes is as you move up to a leadership role, your job is no longer to do the work. Your job is educating and alignment. Yep. And that often means talking to other functional leaders who don't know what you do in your job or what your team does. So it's now your job to explain the importance and how, how your team functions and how you We'll work together with that leader. That was something I personally had to learn the hard way. Yep. I couldn't just explain growth or what I was doing. It had to be, oh, here's what growth is first. And let's start there and then figure out how we work together before I tell you about campaigns and experiments, because yep. none of that matters if if they're not aligned at a higher level. Yeah, I, I, I joke all the time, like, and I actually I already said this on this podcast, the number one thing I do as a leader here is build decks. And, 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 and on one hand, it's a joke. On the other hand, it's actually not that far off from the truth. And then one of the things I think people who work for me, uh, they are a little bit startled by is how, how maniacal I am about decks, like, you know, like formatting, like I, I get our creative director to come in and teach my team, like, how do you format, you know, and, and, you know, like titles and all of those things, because 
you know, Dex, for whatever reason, is is the way most companies drive alignment at this point, right? And 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 it's not. I'm not maniacal about it just because I want to produce a pretty artifact, but I'm maniacal about it because if you have the right deck, it becomes the key piece. Like what I what what typically happens for me after three to six months in a roll is I have this master deck. It's typically about twenty to thirty slides. And in almost every one-on-one I have with a cross-functional stakeholder, if they have a question, I'm like, oh, well, you know, I have a slide for that. Can I, can you give me a second? Let me pull that up in my deck. Like, that's not even a strategic thing I've, I've, you know, decided to do. It just sort of happened that way. Cause I, I realized I needed to build a lot of decks and it, it kind of became the key piece for me to drive alignment, you know, uh, uh, cross-functionally within an organization. Yeah. I, I, I have learned to communicate the value of decks. It's not just like something pretty, like if done correctly, this will become the source of truth and the way you repeat these strategies that you're doing. It's like we were client facing, we have a pitch deck, you know, similar, the way you're talking about it is like, that's why pitch decks are so important for startup companies pitching for funding. Like That's essentially how your idea is gonna be uh, interpreted. And if you're not communicating correctly, you're not gonna get money, which is in your case, you're not going to get budget. Yep. Um, so let's jump into, you, you had mentioned this earlier, account-based marketing. For such a long time, it felt like a nebulous concept, like a buzzword to me. There was account-based marketing, account-based selling, and I didn't truly understand what it meant until you explained it to me. And then it was just like, oh, that, that makes sense. But explain to the, the listeners, how do you view account-based marketing? What is it? And then how do you measure success? Yeah, I think, you know, I've, I've spent years now thinking about, I was probably first introduced the concept of ABM maybe five, six years ago in my career. Um, and, uh, you know, since then, I've done a lot of thinking on this, right? Like, is it a tactic? Is it a, a department in an organization? Is it, you know, is it, you know, uh, um, a, a channel? Like, like what is ABM? And, and I think what I've noticed is, um, you know, because there isn't a lot of clarity around what it what it is, people just define it to whatever serves their needs. So, you know, I would say now, you know, I start with what it isn't. It isn't any of those things. It isn't a tactic. It isn't a team. You know, it is it is an overarching B two B enterprise strategy, right? Like, and 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 it's really and I I I I, I um, qualify that that specifically because it, you know, there was a time when it felt like ABM was like the silver bullet for all marketing, you know, needs. And like, that's, that's crazy because if you have a B2B or a B2C uh, business model, you know, that requires high volume, like ABM is not going to help you uh, achieve, you know, getting, uh, you know, high, a lot of, a lot of new business because of the nature of, of the beast. So, so for me, it's, it's a B2B enterprise strategy. And, and I think the components of those strategy is, uh, you know, I, I've tended to think about it in, in four groups. I think this has been popularized by a lot of the vendors out there. You know, they, they talk about flipping the pyramid and all that, but kind of four, four uh, stages of ABM or four, you know, four motions of an ABM strategy is you need to think about how you're selecting accounts, right? And, 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 and this is done with sales and rev ops and, 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 and really like, you know, ABM is, starts with account selection. Who are the accounts that we want to focus on? Because the strategy of ABM is 
we want to focus most of our marketing dollars on those accounts. So selecting the right accounts is the first step. And then it's and, all right, and how here are, for, for folks who aren't familiar, accounts is like just companies, like what companies, companies are yep. you focused on? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So where where a traditional, um, you know, what I would call traditional inbound demand gen is, hey, we're gonna put a lot of bait out there and see who bites and then work them through the funnel and 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 and, and to uh, to a closed one up deal. You know, ABM is actually flipping that on its head is, hey, let's 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 choose 100 of our top accounts to put 80 percent of our marketing budget towards. Right. It's really different from a demand gen funnel where it's, you know, let's actually focus on our entire TAM and put 80 percent of our marketing dollars on all 5000 accounts that could potentially buy from us and see who kind of, uh, 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 you know, makes it to the end. ABM is let's select a hundred accounts or 200 or whatever it is. And let's put 80% of our budget to marketing to those, uh, to, to those, you know, hundred accounts. Right. And, and, and so, so it starts where I think demand gen typically starts in content and bait and like awareness channels and all that ABM starts with account selection. Um, after you've selected your, your accounts, then it's just contact acquisition. Right. And, and, and now, you know, Whereas I think demand gen is, is a little bit more, what does the market respond to? I think ABM, you acquire content uh, contacts through you know, the right type. First, you need to define who the right people are. Then you go out to content syndication providers, Zoom Info, like all of these different context sources. You might run ads specific to specific personas in a company so that they, they fill out the form, right? And, and so that's getting the your database to a place where you can engage. Then it's, I think the third stage is engagement. So now I have the hundred accounts. I have, you know, 15 of the most important people in my database from those accounts. Then it's engagement. And I think engagement for ABM is all about sales alignment. Uh, you know, I think where demand gen, you know, inbound demand gen is more, I generate an MQL, hand it over to sales. We have an SLA governing our relationship. ABM almost necessitates partnership with sales to go and, and engage an account. So I'll give you an example of a play, uh, uh, account-based marketing play I really like. Um, we, we basically created a, a custom landing page for let's say, uh, uh, let's say the, the account, the company we're going after was Microsoft. It wasn't, but in this case, let's just pretend it was Microsoft. We ran a bunch of ads uh, to Microsoft, targeting Microsoft, the key personas we were going after, and we drove them all to this custom landing page where they, you know, watched a video, signed up for a direct mail, or uh, you know, consume content. And then we actually had a, a tool on the back end that we partnered with sales, and we said, "All right, we just ran this campaign. Let's look at who actually engaged with our contact, and and decide. All right, BDRs, are you going after that contact? AEs, are you going after, or are we just dropping them into a, a marketing nurture?" Like that process was much more collaborative because depending on the person and the engagement, it could really impact how it is we follow up. And, 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 you know, so, so I mean, ABM plays and campaigns look much more like that at the engagement level. And then finally the fourth, the fourth stage, it's all about conversion. All right. How are we actually generating an opportunity out of this campaign? And, and again, that, that, that's more of a sales marketing partnership as opposed to marketing. Here's a lead follow up on it, you know, it, it kind of has to be done together. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that you shared an actual example of, Hey, just 
have a landing page, run targeted ads for personas at this company to that page and get engagement. Um, what are some examples of maybe that uh, conversion stage where you're working with more of a partnership with sales and marketing? What does that look like to say, hey, we got the contacts, we're getting engagement. How yeah. do we figure out how to actually open up an opportunity? So this is where, um, you know, the concept of a marketing qualified account, um, I think, uh, starts to uh, become important. So especially when you, you know, you actually, let, let's say you have a, a world where there's 2000 accounts you, you could potentially go after in, a, in, a, in an ABM campaign, but you really only have budget to effectively go after 100. Like there's a whole qualification process in ABM, very similar to inbound lead qualification, where you know the more engagement an account um, has, the higher their intent is. So, so we talk about it as an intent level. So if there's an account and five people in that account are visiting our website, downloading our content, joining our webinars, that aggregates into an intent score that maybe at, at, a, at, se- at the 70 level, we flag that as an MQA, right? And, and that could be an account we tell sales, hey, marketing has done all this work to get this account doing a bunch of research on us, but, but they're not filling out the demo form because typically, you know, B2B enterprise, we don't really fill out demo forms, right? So, so the inbound engine is not really doing a good job of capturing that lead there. So sales, I think you should launch a outbound campaign into this account, right? And that's where it's really not, and, 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 and that's really where like, it's like a conversion partnership in sales of like, all right, marketing has lit up this account. There's a ton of intent. Now sales, how do we work together to actually convert that account? Now, I would say the partnership continues there because it's not just about dropping all of those contacts into an outreach sequence. What marketing can do is, all right, now we have an MQL. A, hey, let's let's host a um, let's host a field event in the in the city of the HQ and start inviting uh. all of these people in the MQA account to the event uh, to possibly uh, break into the account. Um, uh, you know, I've we we've done things like, well, actually, we haven't done this. I want to do something like, hey, this 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 HQ. 80% of this company is in this one office building in Manhattan. Let's actually do an ad in their elevator <laughs> because we know they're doing a bunch of research on our company. Let's do a really targeted ad on of our company in that elevator. Can you do that? You can oh, buy yeah. I don't I never yeah. even thought about that. Uh, you know, or uh, you know, so so there's some you know, let's 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 run a direct mail campaign, right? Right? Like, you know, one thing that that happens in ABM is, you know, if you're not an MQA or you're, you're, you're like a tier B or tier C account, you might get like the, the $10 direct mail package, which is a, you know, Starbucks card or, you know, like whatever, you know, whatever it is we might send out a plant or something. But if you're like an A tier A account and you've MQA'd, we're going to send you, you know, the hundred dollar speaker or, or something, because like, like, like you've indicated enough interest in us that you're just looking for the excuse to talk to us. So how does marketing and sales work together to, to create an environment where it's like, oh yeah, wow, I just got a speaker. It's so funny. I was just researching, you know, Entra two weeks ago. Yeah, I definitely respond, right? Like that's kind of the serendipitous moment that we're trying to create in ABM. And I, I, I talk about it as serendipitous because 
to the prospect, it feels serendipitous, but to the marketer, we actually leverage data and, and orchestration to create that, that moment of serendipity. Yeah, that, that's amazing and a little bit creepy as a consumer, um, but it's, it's fascinating how you can make that work. The, the part I wonder about is I've, I've been on the receiving end, right? I'll get an email from an account executive who says, hey, uh, will you take a call with me? I'll send you some AirPods if, if you just take a call, no pressure, like no commitment needed. I take the call and just take the AirPods, which great for me, just spent 30 minutes for you know $150 earphones. But I'm curious, what's the, what's the positioning or framing <clears throat> that you use to make sure that one, whatever the offer is, that there's actually an ROI on it? Like, how do you yeah. make it like a clear value conversation and not just yeah. them being transactional? Yeah. So um, I know you didn't ask about attribution, but what I just heard was an attribution question. So, so this is a B2B enterprise attribution strategy, right? Like, like if you're a demand a growth leader, you're, 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 you're starting to run things like this and you have zero attribution strategy. How, how do you build an attribution system and model that I, and, and I think it's two goals. You have two goals. One that shows immediate value. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, so people kind of, get off your back, right? Like that's the first goal and, and let you build, uh, you know, what you need to build. And two, how do you kind of show long, long, you know, long-term value and, and really get, get the, um, get the, you know, get the data you need to, to really run your, run, run your shop. So I think the first, the first step in when I'm, when I'm building attribution models is, is I build a last touch attribution model, a last touch before opportunity. So, uh, you know, what that means is, um, you know, someone goes to a field event that marketing planned and uh, that at that dinner, uh, the salesperson opens up an opportunity, that whole opportunity gets marked as marketing uh, um, uh, in a last touch model, right? The reason why I like to start with last touch models is it's, it's really easy to educate people uh, why marketing created that opportunity. The CFO instantly gets it. The CEO is, is like, yeah, they got a speaker in the mail. The salesperson opened up an opportunity because of that speaker. Marketing gets credit for that opportunity, right? And so it becomes really easy to quickly show value um, uh, um, in, in, in what marketing is doing, which gives you then the runway to not only build the marketing machine, but to actually set up a multi-touch model, which is kind of the you know, the end state, um, which, which in most cases takes at least a year or two in a high growth company to really build and, and, and fine tune. Um, the next step is then I, then I look at a first touch model because what ends up happening is, you know, in a last touch model, it typically skews towards demo requests, events, maybe direct mails, you know, but really in my experience, demo, what, what ends up happening is it looks like marketing is generating a bunch of leads through events and, uh, and ads that just promote demo requests. If that's all you had, you would shut out all of your other channels, webinars, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, really focusing on building out a really robust website content. All of these other things would suddenly get shut out because you're, you're just focused on the last touch model. So the next thing I like to build out is the first touch model, which basically tells me, how did I get the lead? What's going to start lighting up there is content, webinars, you know, uh, you know, these more top of the funnel plays 
that 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 tell me how I'm getting to lead. And 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 then once I have those two things, now I have the last touch model that gives me the runway I need to, you know, that 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 it's all about optics, unfortunately, that that convinces the executive team and the CFO, I know what I'm doing and I'm contributing value to the business. Then I have the first touch model that starts to paint for me a fuller picture of all the various marketing channels that are, are contributing to, to my success. And then you, and, and, and along the way, you're building a multi-touch model, which typically starts linear, where all of your touches are getting equal credit, and then you can get into more specific thing. And, and when you get to a multi-touch model, now you really understand how all of your various channels, whether that's direct mail or, or content or whatever, is contributing to revenue. Uh, the other thing you've done is you've now had a year or two of educating the company of how to like start caring about multi uh, marketing metrics. And it's at this point, I would introduce the concept of pipeline influence. Uh, I think where a lot of folks go wrong when building uh, uh, marketing teams is they start introducing pipeline influence as a metric and no one really believes them because it's like, what do you mean you influenced it? Like, you know, it's like, the person clicked 10 ads and then an outbound sales call is what generated the opportunity. If I, as a marketer, try to claim credit for that early on, people are going to be like, what do you mean? No, it was definitely David who did the outbound call that generated the opportunity. And they don't really believe that all the ad clicks leading up to that actually influenced the op. And, and so, uh, you know, that's kind of the, the, the process, I think. Got it. Thanks, thanks for walking us through all of that. Um, I'd love to hear it. So you shared a couple examples, like seemed like hypothetical examples of ABM campaigns. I know there's like a lot that goes into uh, a campaign, but tell us about like one of your favorite campaigns you've run, maybe like one portion of it that was pretty exciting that worked out that you were very, that was very memorable for you. So, you know, one, 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 so as I've been thinking about this, I've stopped calling it an ABM campaign. Um, because I think it confuses ABM with what I consider the super category of integrated campaign. Um, and integrated campaign encompasses ABM, but it also does things like fuels the inbound engine, which, you know, in a lot of business is, are still really important. So I tend to think of it as there's ABM tactics uh, that might roll into an orchestration of multiple tactics and alignment with sales. And that's part of a broader integrated campaign, which includes what's your content plan, what's your high-level theme, uh, you know, what's your inbound engine and ad strategy, right? And and so, so um, that's kind of how I typically think of it, and how, how I actually build my orgs now. That could change two years from now, but that's kind of my current thinking. So, in terms of your question, I think what you're really asking: what are some examples of ABM plays and and orchestrations you could do? So, I think, uh, sorry, ABM tactics and some orchestrations you can do. I think in the tactics level, you know, some of the most popular ones, direct mail, especially pre-COVID and, and now post-COVID, as people, you know, if you're in an industry like financial services that are returning into the office, I That's think direct weird. mail, I mean, I was at a prior company, I was generating $170 a pipeline for every dollar I put into my direct mail program. It was like the wow. number one channel. And we were selling into HR. Imagine. I send a box of cupcakes to, which is like what, $20, you know, with shipping to uh, economic buyer or champion. They put it out in their office to share. All of a sudden, all the office is eating free cupcakes from, 
you know, my company. And so now when the BDR goes and reaches out to that, uh, that office, they're like, oh yeah, I heard about, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, you know, tell me more. Right. So, so that's, you know, one of the most classic, I would consider ABM tactics. It's why Sendoso has grown as quickly as they have grown because like that stuff kind of works. And, and, and I would say even in the COVID and post COVID era, it is re-emerging as a really effective channel to target an account and a group of people and to, to generate a lot of buzz to make the outbound outreach more successful. Then you, you know, at the orchestration level, it's kind of like what I was sharing earlier, right? Dedicated landing page. And as part of that landing page, there's a bunch of tactics. There's, there's a direct mail offer. There's maybe an exclusive um, executive roundtable uh, offer. There's, you know, uh, you know, all these, these things. And, and, and there's, a, there's a, um, a tactic, there's an ad tactic where we're only serving ads to that target account using an ABM ad platform. And, and we're orchestrating all those things together with sales to uh, open an opportunity in, 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 that, um, in that account. So the orchestration I've done in the past starts with ads. Ads drive to a dedicated landing page where they, uh, where they start to uh, capture engagement. Maybe two weeks later, we run a highly exclusive invite-only roundtable with the thought leader in the space, right? That everyone wants to hear from only to the economic buyers or the champions of that account. So it's invite only. And then as a follow-up to that roundtable, we send out a, a, a really exclusive speaker to basically say, hey, David, thanks so much for joining our roundtable. Uh, um, actually, what we, what we actually do, so I'll use a real example. We actually take the recording of that roundtable, create a bound booklet. Uh, with with quotes and like insights from the roundtable, and we mail it to to the attendees and go, hey David, here's a, a summary. You know, it's a statement piece of of you know everything you talked about. Your quote is in there, right? So it makes you feel special. And then the BDR comes and ca- uh, calls you up and says, hey David, did you get the booklet we sent you? Um, you know, like uh, I wanted to see if you had any questions about it, right? That's like tactic after tactic after like now you as the buyer, you've seen the ads, you've seen the landing page, you've attended the roundtable, you have this really nice direct mail piece. So when the BDR goes after you, you're that much ready to respond and say, yeah, I'd love to talk to you. Yeah, that is fact. So how do you, how do you get their address? They, do they fill it out or are you going to some database and like buying? Yeah, you know. Pre-COVID, um, I was a real big fan of leveraging um, HQ addresses, especially knowing, you know, especially you kind of knew pre-COVID, was this a HQ focused company? Was this hybrid? Was this remote? You know, like, like it was pretty clear, right? Like what those lines are. So it was an HQ focused company. You just send it to the HQ and, and you, you use that to your advantage. Like maybe you're the one employee that's not an HQ and you're remote. But when I email you and say, hey, I sent you a package, uh, did you get it? Even me responding and saying, oh, I actually don't work from the HQ, blah, blah, blah. Like that's a response I could take advantage of in, in a really productive way. It's like, oh, let me send you one to your house, right? Um, I think the era of COVID has made that a lot more confusing. I, I definitely think in industries that are back in the office, the HQ approach could still work. Um, there are technologies now that, that do address verification stemming from email. So you get an email, hey David, would love, you know, I pick, I see your uh, um, 
uh, a Lakers fan. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I see you're a Lakers fan. I want to send you a jersey. Uh, you know, if, if you fill out your address here, I'll send you a jersey and, and you know, uh, you know, we, we should we should meet up. Right. Like, so that, that's a really common tactic. I think it's unfortunately a little less effective than the HQ tactic. Um, uh, and then, and really, um, but yeah, I mean, you're not going to get home addresses from someone unless they, they, they give it to you. Um, so, so yeah. I think it's, you're either sending it to the, HQ, the office or, uh, which you can get through zoom info or whatever, or you're, you're doing some kind of hybrid, like sending out the email first, letting them fill out their address. Um, but I've noticed the response rates for a tactic like that is typically less successful. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah. I, I recently found a service called ongoody.com mm-hmm. and their whole thing is, yeah, if you want to send a gift to someone, just give us their email. We'll like email them to say, Hey, David would like to send you a gift, Joe. Like what's your mailing address and we'll send it to you, which I found to be very helpful. I don't know if tools like Sendoso allow that, um, but that's been a, a helpful thing for sending out gifts. Let's say, let's shift away from the the ABM specific questions. And I know one of the things that you're quite passionate about is like leadership and building a team. So let's say you join a company and you got to build a demand gen team from scratch, or in your case, let's call it a growth marketing team. What role, how do you think about that? What's the framework you're thinking about to figure out who do you hire first and what, in what order are you, are you building out your team? Yeah, I think the first question I need to ask is, like it actually starts with company goals and resourcing, right? So, so for the first step is aligning with CEO, CFO, you know, depending on how big the organization is, you know, what are the company goals for the next year? And then it's asking the question, what are your expectations for marketing support of these goals? And this is, okay, you just asked about demand gen. So let's just focus on demand gen. What are the revenue goals for next year? What is our expectation for how marketing will contribute to that? Going back to my earlier point, using a last touch model. And, and there's certain benchmarks for this, right? So for B2B enterprise, typically it's a lower contribution metric. So in terms of like, like a true marketing contribution, you know, in the biggest companies, it's somewhere at like 20%, probably. You know, I think at a higher growth startup, you know, like marketing can effectively contribute anywhere from 30 to 40% of, of overall pipeline and, and revenue to a company. Uh, and, and so it's, it's really aligning on that. And then, then it's building out the model. All right. If I'm supposed to contribute, let's say 33%, a third of the revenue next year, uh, how do I, how do I do that? Right. Like, you know, how much is going to come from digital, how much is going to come from events, how much is going to come from these ABM, you know, tactics and orchestrations we're, we're working on building a model for that. And then basically then saying, all right, how much money and people do I need to actually execute all this, right? I would say that level of planning, or at least some thought into all that, because the reality is if you're early stage, you don't have a lot of the historical metrics or even time or data to do all that modeling. But that level of thinking first is going to help you do a few things. One, it's going to help you go to the CFO and say, Hey, I, I can absolutely contribute 33% of the pipeline, but I need this kind of budget and headcount. And they're going to basically come and say, cool, let's do it. Or no, like, like that would, that would make marketing budget 40% of our, of our revenue. 
And there's no way we, which is very typical and probably sub $10 million, right? Like, you know, like there's no way we can spend 40% of our revenue on marketing. And, 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 and that, and then, and then, and then he comes back or he or she comes back and says, you know, this is what I can give you. And then you can, you can put that into a model and say, all right, well, with these kind of resources at best, I'm going to sign up for 15%, right? So it gives you some planning to try to set you up for success up front. A lot of it is honestly throwing spaghetti at the wall and guessing, but at least you've had that conversation and that opportunity to try to set you up for success as possible. Then it's really, all right, I have three heads. What do I need? Versus I have 10 heads. What do I need? If you have like one or two or three heads, you're basically looking for senior generalists who can come in, figure things out, who's seen the script before and, uh, and, 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 and can wear multiple hats. If you have 10 heads, you can start to specialize the team. And, and this kind of builds on a lot of the stuff I was talking about earlier. When I think about specializing a team, it's kind of, you know, this is now my fifth demand gen focused role. I have a campaigns person who's thinking about the inbound engine and ABM. I have, a, um, I have an events leader who's thinking about sponsored events and field. I have... Um, you know, uh, you know, if, if, you know, content, if, if top of the funnel organic is important, I think it, it makes a lot of sense for content to, to sit in growth or demand. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And, uh, in, in, in some orgs, if you've run BDR outbound machines before, like, like that can often sit in, but, but I'm basically thinking about leadership roles in terms of what are like, the main demand funnels I expect pipeline to come on and I'm hiring specialists to run those functions. Yeah. And, uh, and you mentioned essentially leadership roles just now, how does that change? Like once you start, you mentioned you're hiring a bunch of directors. Yeah. How do you think about building out that leadership team? So you mentioned these first senior generalists that you hired, do they essentially get promoted up into a director role or is that only Again, sometimes the case? I think, I think it really depends on expectations and budget, right? Like if, if you're at an early stage startup and, and you have a $1 million program budget and, uh, you know, two head counts, but, you know, $400,000 to spend on two heads, the, real, the reality is you're going to get two mid-level managers, you know, like basically I would optimize for as high of levels as possible, right? So rather than hiring four coordinators, I'd probably hire two mid-level managers, one focused on building the inbound engine, one focused on building, you know, the outbound engine with sales and, you know, expect that I'm going to be spending a lot of time coaching and, and driving strategy. And in an org like that, as you grow, they're going to get promoted up into uh, more specialist roles. Uh, in a larger org, you know, where I'm already like here at Entra, I, I have, you know, the, the, the privilege of being able to build out a specialized org from the get-go, I'm looking for really senior specialists who've seen the script before, who know more about these channels than I do, who can really come in and, 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 and take quickly take it to the next level. Right. Got it. So let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, Hey, I'm tired of my job. I don't work. I want to work for Joe. He sounds really smart. What advice would you have for them? Or what would make their application or resume stand out? Like, what are you looking for when you hire someone? Yeah, I, um, uh, I, you know, as someone coming into tech with a really weird background, 
I spent a lot of time working on how I tell my story and how I represent my, how I market myself on my resume. So I really like my resume template. Like I, I think it's pretty good and I've gotten a lot of good feedback on it. And so I tend to look for similar things uh, and, and I'll just walk through what my resume looks like. I have a, I have a statement up top of who I am. And I think mine says now nah, I'm a, you know, growth marketing leader who specializes in X It's like one line. And then the next thing I put is all the things I specialize in. So it's like ABM, you know, uh, uh, email marketing, uh, you know, paid advertising, you know, campaigns, you know, and it's maybe like uh, 16, yeah, about 15 items, I think up top of my specialty. And then I just list my experience uh, and I keep it one page. And, and the reason I recommend a resume format is it, 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 high, it, it basically follows my principles for resume design interviewing. It's one, control your narrative. If you don't control your narrative, some, you're, you're letting the other person control your narrative. That's why I say I'm a B2B growth marker who's specializing in these things. If I don't have that, they might read my resume and go, oh, yeah, like Joe's a blah, blah, blah. And it, it could be totally off. And I just want to control my narrative. The other thing is, I want to highlight what I can do and the metrics uh, uh, associated with it. So, so I highlight my particular skill set again, controlling the narrative, and then in my individual bullet points, they're all metrics driven, right? So, I, I always make sure you know I like there's a quantifiable thing in whatever it is I'm talking about in my resume. I think if you've successfully done that, that those same principles come then in the interview process. First question you're always going to get asked is, so tell me about yourself. Give me, give me your elevator pitch. That's controlling your narrative, right? Like when I f- try to get into tech, I literally wrote that out word for word and I practiced it in the shower for a month. So I could, I could, I could literally read because that's 95% of the interviews you, you're going to get. That's the first question. Tell me your story. And, and if like, I think most people think that's a throwaway question. I would say that's the most important question of your interview that you should be able to tell in a succinct fashion, and it's going to set up the rest of your interview, you know, for success. Uh, just like like your resume, that that top part, and um, and then and then the, the third key, just like your resume, make sure you give concrete examples with metrics, right? Like uh, um, and 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 a good demand gen leader is going to ask you for metrics. So rather than just give your example and let them ask you, just tie your metrics in because it communicates to the person, this guy's obsessed with metrics, which is, which is pretty key. Yeah. I love that. So for anyone listening to this, if they apply and get an interview, they should expect that question prepare now. Yep. <laughs> All right. So a lot of open role. The... please apply. Awesome. Uh, we'll make sure to link to the, the job listings. So we're going to close out with a couple uh, of my favorite questions here at the end. So what's one opinion or belief you have about business or marketing that you think people would disagree with? Um, <laughs> you know, you know, the, the top one comes to mind is. Uh, I, and, and this is going to sound really self-serving, but I'll, I'll unpack it a little. But I, I think marketing is not a support function of sales, but it's the sharp end of the sphere. And uh, if not more important than sales, uh, uh, definitely on par and should be held. Oh, hot take. Yes. 
and and I, I I say that like I thought a lot about this because when you when you study marketing in business school, um, a lot of times sales is a function of marketing, right? Because because his you know uh, another 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 anecdotal thing. I, I'm rereading the book Crossing the Chasm, and the thing I didn't pick up the first time of reading that book, it's a book about marketing, because mm-hmm. in old school business, the marketer, the CMO was was their domain their domain was the market like they were the market expert and so and 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 and, and what's happened is as companies have developed we started to strip a lot of things off of the marketer's responsibility so for example the marketer used to be the voice of the customer well who's the voice of the customer now in a b2b org it's this new role called the chief customer officer or the the, the svp of customer success those kind of roles didn't really exist before, right? Uh, you know, uh, the marketer used to be the industry specialist. Well, in a lot of orgs I've observed, that's kind of become a sales role, right? Like, because, you know, like the sellers are the ones out in the industry and, 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 and you know, the marketer used to always own pricing and packaging, and that's now kind of been stripped off and, and is, is now like a lot of times in the product, product role. So, so what's happened is the marketer role in the C-suite, I think has actually become neutered. A little bit as and 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 um and so you have all these statistics like the marketer has the the shortest tenure of the organization they're often the, the lowest paid c-level executive and all of these things and and i actually think uh one if we keep going down this road you're you're, you're gonna you're gonna miss this golden opportunity to, to build like lasting brands which is ultimately what you need a great yeah. marketer to do. And, and, uh, and so, you know, I'm really passionate. Like we, you know, C-suites evolve, businesses evolve. We need to think about what does the next generation of CMO look like where they really have a true equal seat at the table and, and they're not really seen as, you know, like the lowest ranking executive, you know, in, in, in the C-level. Um, and a lot of the, I think the thought leader uh, CMOs out there are, are doing. So La- I think of Latney um, uh, from Sixth Sense. So she has this whole. She's not the chief marketing officer. She's the chief market officer, right? And it's it's this reaffirmation. I don't just manage a bunch of actions, marketing tactics. Yeah. I I'm I'm the owner of the market, right? And she's reexerting herself. I think. Um, you know, I've I've really been thinking about this concept of CMO 3.0. You know, if a CMO 1.0 was like the Don Draper creative guy, and CMO 2.0 was like the demand gen leads and MQLs and pipeline guy. I think CMO 3.0 is is this is the person who really cares about revenue, and 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 it's the revenue focused uh, CMO, and um, and. You know, you might think, oh, well, isn't that the CRO who's typically a salesperson? And I'm like, yeah. well, yeah, but revenue is much more than just sales. It's also being able to understand what's the total addressable market and how do we grow the total addressable market and what's the revenue potential of our business and our, com- and our company. And I think the marketer uniquely is, is qualified to, to own that piece of it, the chief market officer, if you will. And really... I think once the marketer starts to pick that up again, I, I, I believe you're going to see more and more CROs come from the marketing department as well as the sales department. Yeah, it's, it's, I did not know or pay attention to a lot of these different dynamics that you pointed out, but 
it reminds me of how, you know, marketing feels like one of those functions where everyone thinks they know what you should do, <laughs> but you, you talk about sales and all of a sudden people don't really have an opinion. You talk yeah. about ops and people don't really have an opinion, but marketing, everyone always has an opinion on what would be yeah. done, like how the numbers would be much better if they just did their idea. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's fascinating seeing that trend. And it sounds like uh, the, the next stage is going to be really interesting to watch how CMOs develop. So really, really interesting take there. All right. So next question here is what's one impactful piece of advice you've been given? The first thing that comes to mind is not like a specific piece of advice, but it's, it's, it's something I've been thinking about a lot and actually goes counter to some advice I'm getting as I, I grow senior. Uh, so let me, let me actually speak the counter point of the advice, uh, which is, you know, a lot of people tell me that the more senior I get, the more I, uh, uh, I need to basically be able to reduce my empathy and make the hard calls. And, and, uh, you know, and, and, and to a degree, I agree with that, right? Like there's always going to be people I need to fire. There's always going to be people I need to performance manage out. There's always going to be hard calls I'm going to need to make when, you know, revenue is down and, 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 and blah, 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 blah. But I fundamentally disagree, I think at, at this point in my, you know, career and, and, and especially watching what's happening right now in the, in the job market with this idea that, that a key quality of senior leadership is, is, is making, you know, metrics driven hard calls. I, I actually think the key quality of a great leader is how do you make the hold ca hard calls, but really hold intention, the people that that hard call impacts, right? And so I, I, I wanna start off by saying, I fully believe that at times, there are times in any company life cycle where you need to do mass layoffs. That's just, un, that's just a part of business and it's unavoidable. Even, even this debate around rescinding offers and is that morally right or correct? Like, dude, there are absolutely times where, you, I mean, for the sake of the business, you, you know, and, and for the greater good, you have to make some of those hard calls. But if you're not struggling with that and not just emotionally, but tactically, like, are there other options here? Can we explore pay cuts on the executive team? Can we explore other places to cut? Can we, um, you know, can can we explore better ways of doing communication, even if there's a security risk involved? Like, like if 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 you haven't spent hours and hours and hours in that tension, I think you're you're missing something as a as a, as a leader. Right. And, and, and I, and, and I've seen this enough now where it's just like, well, revenue just dropped 50%. We need to cut 20%. It's pretty cut and dry. If you're a good leader. You're just going to execute. Um, uh, I, I just don't think that's true anymore. And I, I think now you're seeing a revolt in, in the workforce against that kind of thinking. And I, I think the leaders who are going to be the most successful are not just the ones who are like in tears as they announce layoffs, but the ones who can really transparently say, here's the full process we went through. And, and, and for people to walk away feeling, yeah, that sucked, but I get it. Like, I, I, th I think that's gonna be, a, that's a really, you know, like 
how how interesting would it be for some of these mass layoffs that happen where if, if there was enough transparency about the process and and just the tension where most people walked away and go like man it really sucks i lost a job i'm kind of angry but yeah you know they actually really tried and they explained yeah. it in a way that i make like like that would be phenomenal and i think that's that's what we should aspire to um in, in, uh, as leaders so I I, uh, I actually got chills listening to you say that because I don't think I, I personally have not seen that before. But if a leader could communicate, we tried this, we considered this option, we considered this option, that didn't work. We considered these last options. Like this was the final, like last resort. And we really tried. And we, in the beginning, we wanted to cut this many jobs, but now we're able to reduce that to cutting this many. I think that process would be fascinating. One to one observe from an outsider's perspective, but I imagine that feels a lot better for employees than just, you know, getting cut. Yep. That's great. All right. So last question here, wrap it up. Where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I, I, David, you and I talked a lot about, oh, I need to build my personal brand more. I'm <laughs> terrible at it. So probably the best place would be on, on LinkedIn, uh, would, would love for you to, uh, you know, I have a rule. I never connect with anyone who doesn't leave a message or that I don't know. But if, if you tell me you, uh, you know, you, you heard me on the podcast and you, you want to do X, X, you know, you want to ask these questions or whatever, I'll definitely connect with you on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, would love for a follow on Entra or a, a, a job application or a resume from you if you're interested in, in connecting. But yeah, I think LinkedIn is probably the best place. Awesome. We'll make sure to link to, to all those pages. All right, Joe, thanks so much for the time. Really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thank you. This was a lot of fun.